0: Everybody has a vulnerability. The question is, how easy is it for the attackers to find it? How easy did you make it for them? That becomes the question. Do you think they're inside your network? They probably are.
1: If you recognize that voice, you'll know it's cybersecurity expert, James Risler, who we've had on the show before. In this episode, James talks about the evolution of cyber attacks. This includes everything from the advancement of attack types to the adaptation and growth of the hacker mindset. James discusses all of this by walking through what each of the attack types are and also by providing examples of how these attacks have been implemented. Be sure to listen to the end so you can hear a story of a particularly interesting attack that James recounts. But to get started, James walks you through the emergence of one of the first attack types, worms.
0: we see back in 2000, the attack types were worms. They were very limited in nature, what they did. They usually exploited one thing, like Code Red exploited a SQL weakness. In 2005, we got spyware, which started basically looking at cookies on your machine and leaving other special treats on your machine based on what browsers allowed it to do. And rootkits, rootkits enable people to basically install backdoors, and that they could come back and take the machine over and basically run it as a root user. So that's how it got its name, rootkits. In the Windows machine, there's no root user, but if you got root access on a Windows machine, basically you had administrative rights. There are ways where you can, once you compromise a machine, that you can try to elevate your rights depending upon what you have. And you can go in at the command line and using a methodology, figure out what your current rights are as a user. You might come in and take an advantage of a print driver. And print driver has system rights. That's not administrative rights, but you've got to elevate those rights. There's a whole process to how you go ahead and penetrate a machine and escalate your rights up. Sometimes you can do it, sometimes the machine is well defended and you can't without compromising or indicating to the user that somebody's on that machine. Then 2007, or started changing the game.
1: Conficker wasn't discovered until November 2008. In a New York Times article from August 2009, technology journalist John Markoff wrote, Like a ghost ship, a rogue software program that glided into the internet last November has confounded the efforts of top security experts to eradicate the program and trace its origins and purpose, exposing serious weaknesses in the world's digital infrastructure. The program, known as Conficker, uses flaws in operating system software to co-opt machines and link them into a virtual computer that can be commanded remotely by its authors. With more than 5 million of these zombies now under its control, including government, business, and home computers in more than 200 countries, this shadowy computer has power that dwarfs that of the world's largest data centers." I know that sounds really dramatic, but the work of Conficker seemed to be incredibly advanced and that scared a lot of experts in the cybersecurity field. In a later article from the New York Times in 2019, journalist Mark Bowden, an author of Worm, which is about the Conficker virus, wrote, Quote, Conficker's encryption was worlds ahead of most. It employed three of the most sophisticated coding methods in existence RC4, RSA, and MD6, all produced by the premier cryptologist in the world, Ron Revest, of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. End quote. The FBI didn't catch the culprits behind the Conficker virus until its creators tried to refine Conficker's cryptography, which culminated in the new and improved Conficker C. Bowden writes, quote, This significantly narrowed the window during which Configure's creators had revisited either the MIT or NIST websites. Combing through the relatively few experts who used the websites just before Conficker C appeared, investigators found the IP address of smartsystem.com.ua, the address of a company that was the recipients of millions swindled by trafficconverter.biz. It was a gotcha moment. On July 21, 2011, an FBI agent, Norm Sanders, arrested three men: Sergey Karmatov, Dmitro Volokitin, and Yevgen Fayetyev. They were men in their 30s who drove multi-million dollar black Porsches and lived in penthouse apartments. They had met in school and were partners in SmartSystems.com. Their company had more than 100 employees, each claimed to earn the equivalent of only $30,000 annually. Mr. Kamratov said he was a school teacher, end quote. This attack was such a big deal, mainly because of its potential not only to commit theft, but because of its potential for launching a large-scale cyber attack on computer networks.
0: We got into custom design software that had a lot of new features to it. The ability to encrypt itself, ability to morph itself and the ability to call home. So now we're into what's called advanced persistent tax, (APTs). These are attacks that are designed against your organization. So somebody goes out and figures out who you are, what specifically is going on with your organization, and then they go attack it. And the reason that we have tomorrow, it's really today increased attack surface not only is everybody carrying a cell phone around with them which is basically a very powerful personal computing device that's got an attack service if you've looked at the android all the attacks that come across the google operating system there's attacks against the google browser microsoft browser by the way don't use microsoft browser but what we have to do is we have to come up with responses for each one of these in the beginning it was antivirus or host-based deterrents so on the machine, you'd have a host-based solution that if anything changed on the machine, it would notify the user. Then we got into intrusion detection and intrusion prevention system, the perimeter. That helped with certain things. Then we got into reputation, which by the way, we're still using IDS, we're still using antivirus. You're still using reputation, and sandboxing, and everybody's still getting attacked. And that's going to happen because their complexity of these attacks, they know what you have at the top. They have gone and bought the stuff. They have gone and downloaded Snort, installed Snort and put the signatures on
1: it. By the way, if you're not already aware, Snort is a network intrusion detection and prevention system, and it's open source. It basically uses a series of rules that help define malicious network activity and then uses those rules to find packets that match against them. Then it generates alters for users. Check it out at snort.org.
0: They have Microsoft Windows with the latest patches on it. They're looking for things that aren't patched or they're looking for things that are patched that nobody knows about the whole. So today you have to use reputation scores, you have to use sandboxing. We know of certain DNS IPs out there that when you go to these URLs, that they are known sites to host malware or attack weapons. If any of you have home solutions, I would highly recommend that you use the open DNS, the free DNS servers to resolve names because that will block redirection. I love you, Melissa, SQL Slammer, Conflicker. So you had firewalls, anti-intrusion, worms. We had intrusion prevention with Conflicker and SQL Slammer. SQL Slammer would have been picked up by the IDS today. But remember with IDS signatures, it's a matching process and you can't have every signature turned on in your IDS. If you turn on every signature, basically it makes your IDS turn into a giant brick on your network and every piece of traffic going through it is literally brought to a standstill. So you have to tailor it to what your organization needs. So you should tailor your signatures on your IDS or IPS to match the applications and solutions that the users are using. Now more and more users are using cloud-based computing software and cloud-based computing software creates an increased attack surface. So now people are using Evernote.
1: The application Evernote that James just referred to is a task and text application. The Health Sector Cybersecurity Coordination Center, or HC3, which serves as a US Department of Health and Human Services to increase awareness of cybersecurity attack, actually just released a statement on August 10th, 2022 about Evernote saying that, quote, HC3 has been made aware of a campaign that is currently targeting various healthcare providers. The campaign has a subject line of victim organization, date business review, and utilizes a secure message theme. Inside of the email is a malicious link which lures the recipient to a victim organization-themed Evernote site. On the site is an HTML download which has been identified as a malicious phishing trojan. The file contains JavaScript which renders an Adobe and Microsoft-themed page that attempts to harvest Outlook, IONOS, AOL, or other credentials, end quote.
0: You gotta be careful, Evernote, other applications like that that are cloud-based, that creates potential opportunities for people to exploit maybe a hole in Evernote or a hole in that cloud-based solution to get access into your organization. And then directed attack, advanced persistent attacks. they know who you are, they've gone out and studied your company using Facebook, LinkedIn, all the free information they can get off the internet about your company. They might even come into your company and sit in the lobby or dumpster dive in your dumpster looking for things that could tell them about machines, software, or code that you have running in your network. It depends upon how bad they want to attack you. So, common attack methods. Social engineering still works today. There's a team that Cisco works with all the time that goes out and does penetration testing. They always start with the social engineering aspect. Now, their social engineering is very creative, extremely creative. They'll register phone numbers one digit off. They'll move in the building next door to your company. I mean, they go to great expenses, but you know, attackers do as well. Technical exploits. Social engineering and technical exploits are probably 95 or higher percent of the attacks out there. Social engineering is still a people problem, so you have to train your people on your network, even users that are just using the network for resources, not to click on things. Because when they click on things or emails that they don't recognize that have links in them, it creates problems for you. Zero day attacks. Zero day attacks are a lot more difficult to detect, and they're also a lot more difficult for somebody to create. They have to put a lot of time in to go find a zero-day attack. That means they have to study the software, constantly test the software, and it might not achieve what they want. So for time versus value, zero-day attacks do not achieve the greatest return on investment. So a lot of companies out there that do these types of attacks or organizations don't invest a lot in zero-day attacks. If they come across them, great. Sometimes instead of working on a zero-day attack, they wait for organizations to announce that they found code holes, and then what they do is they wait for somebody not to patch it. So they find that maybe Adobe found a code hole and is recommending everybody to patch, and then they know what people don't do. People don't patch their networks, and then that leaves that exploit potentially there. So that's probably a technical exploit, but you would think it's a zero-day, but it's not really a zero-day because Adobe has fixed it. Denial-of-service attack or a botnet-distributed denial-of-service attack. These types of attacks are usually perpetrated on organization to disrupt its activities. At one time, the company SCO, UNIX, was going to sue Linux, And as soon as they started the lawsuit against Linux for claiming that code in the kernel of the Linux operating system and Linus had taken it from their code, they literally cratered because all the Linux fans out there basically started a giant denial of service against them. Sometimes you might get a denial of service attack because Anonymous or another organization might not like what your organization is doing. Spoofing attacks. Spoofing attacks are a lot more difficult to do from the outside. They're usually done on the inside of the network. You can spoof DNS, you can spoof DHCP, and you can use tools like Cain and Able to spoof ARP tables and mess with ARP tables on a switch network. Those types of problems can be solved using Secured Layer 2 VLAN implementation. Reflection amplification attacks. This is an example of when you basically send packets to one destination, hoping that destination then turns around and sends it on to the destination you really want it to attack. That would create a whole amplification attack if you send a bunch of forged packets to thousands of sites telling it you're coming from a different address. Smurf attacks Smurf attacks can be pretty much solved using either firewalls today or good routing setup and configuration. Reconnaissance, they're not very common as a form of attack, but they do occur. I have it happen on my network. I see it on other people's networks all the time. So you'll see reconnaissance attacks all the time where people are scanning to see what ports you have open. Some of that traffic is legitimate, but some of it's not. And then finally, man-in-the-middle attack, can occur both inside and outside So attackers today. They quickly change tactics and tools They build their own tools. so they don't use Metasploit.
1: Metasploit helps security teams verify vulnerabilities, manage security assessments, and improve security awareness.:
0: The reason they don't use Metasploit is because there's IPS signatures today that fire for Metasploit. So. They have to go out and build their own tools, but they might use the concepts of how Metasploit configures an attack in their tool. So they have to determine what the machine or device that they want to attack is, and then get a lot of background information before they start crafting their attack or building their tool. They might devise a spam campaign. Yes, spam still works. People still click on it. If you craft a spam well enough, The user might click on it because they might be distracted, they might not be taking their time, and they might think, oh, my bank's sending me an email telling me that they're going to be doing an outage, and click here and report some information, okay? The bank should already know that. Banks may send you that type of information telling you about an outage, but they probably wouldn't put links in there. So you have to go look at those email addresses and be very curious about where those emails are coming from and make sure you validate them. If all else fails, delete it. Design malware on trusted tools. So they might put malware inside of code that you currently use. My home personal machine was tricked with malware. That appeared as one thing, but it wasn't. Everybody has a vulnerability. The question is, how easy is it for the attackers to find it? How easy did you make it for them? That becomes the question. Do you think they're inside your network? They probably are. So if you start looking at packets going out of your network you'll probably start finding telltale signals that there is something going on in your network I'll give you an example if you see dns txt records going out or srv records going out of your network you need to be taking a look at those payloads and seeing if somebody's using dns as a tunneling protocol take time to establish a hidden presence it does take time it's not easy. They could go work on your company or your organization for months. They'll probably, one attacker might be working in a team. But let's talk about the attacker methodology. To better understand the attacks that are happening. You have to understand the mindset of the attacker. So first one, they want to gather is info. How do they do that? Very easily, they just do internet searches. Somebody out there has put something on Facebook, on LinkedIn, or there's public documents out there that tell them information. They can go look at your DNS registration, and see what your DNS servers are, what your IP addresses are, your public IP addresses. They can figure that stuff out. Once they figure that stuff out, they might start a scan of your network to see if your ports are open. It happens all the time. If you have a firewall there, you know, your firewall will tell you potentially what's going on. Somebody's scanning you looking for open ports. You might have legitimate open ports like SMTP, port 25, for inbound email support. They might then try to determine on the other end of that, is the email server able to be compromised? Can that application be broken? What is that email server? So are you really physically using an email server or using an email proxy? So some type of device that acts as an intermediate email server, but scans the attachments and watches for attacks. After they get a foothold, they wanna gain access and they want to escalate that. They will go look for public information. They will map that information. The attacker may be short-term oriented, or they may be long-term oriented. If they're long-term oriented, once they gain access, they might go to sleep and come back later on. They might do more public digging or more information searches to try to help them once they have gained access for them to pivot sideways. Like they want to know what kind of printers you're running or what kind of wireless devices you're running on your network then they want to persist so they want to make sure that every step that they make they don't give themselves away by making too much noise remember every time that they send a packet into your network the potential for them to be caught continues to go up if you're looking most companies aren't looking today then they want to expand and accomplish their goal what is their goal what are they trying to get from You have to think like the attacker. So, classic attack sequence is probe your network, penetrate the network, persist, propagate, and then potentially paralyze. This is typically a goal of an advanced persistent threat. Let's look at a really simple example of an attack. So here the attacker sends an email to a victim. Of course, the user in your network clicks on it. it, infects the victim's machine, the machine then starts sending command and control back out of the network. Command and control servers are not the same location as the external attacker. The external attacker may be using those zombie machines somewhere else to control his attack. So he then goes to those command and control servers, which may be moving from URL to URL. And the reason he does that is to try to hide his attack. The command and control signal on one signal might go to blumbawumba.com, and the next time that might go to abcz.com on the next packet it sends out so it might every day look for a different command and control server so they could set up and most of the time they do they set up three or four command and control servers to give themselves some fault tolerance the attacker then sends the instructions to the victim so the attacker connects to the command and control server and says, ah, oh, I see I have an infected machine. Now I'm going to queue up an attack, but I have to look at the information I received from the machine about it. So usually when they infect a the machine, they capture the sys info of the machine or the device. They want to figure out what kind of device it is. And they usually have routines or software code that they run that tells them very simple information about the machine. Remember, the attacker is thinking through this process. The WannaCry attacker used ransomware, did not think through the entire process.
1: The WannaCry attack was the next evolution of the Conficker attack. WannaCry was a worldwide cyber attack in May 2017 by the WannaCry ransomware crypto worm. This worm targeted computers running certain operating systems by encrypting data and demanding ransom payments in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency. Even if the victim of the attack could uninstall the ransomware worm, all of their data was encrypted and they would have to pay up or else they wouldn't be able to access anything from their computer ever again. The attackers behind the WannaCry attack learned a lot from Conficker. As Alex Hearn, now the UK technology editor for The Guardian, wrote in December of 2017, quote, Before WannaCry, the last major worm to hit the wild was Conficker. WannaCry had a helping hand to break through. In April 2017, a mysterious hacking group called the Shadow Brokers released details of a weakness in operating systems that could be used to automatically run programs on other computers on the same network. That weakness, it is believed, had been stolen in turn from the NSA, codenaming it Eternal Blue. Eternal Blue was part of the NSA's toolbox of hacking techniques, used to attack the machines of US enemies before one of them turned the tables. The Eternal Blue weakness was fixed in March before it was released by the Shadow Brokers, tipped off by the NSA that it was likely to be made public. But two months later, many organizations had yet to install the patch. Ultimately, WannaCry was too successful for its own good, spreading so fast that the security researchers were tearing it apart within hours of it appearing in the wild. One of them, a young Briton called Marcus Hutchins, discovered that affected computers tried to access a particular web address after infection. Curiously, the address wasn't registered to anyone, so he bought the domain. And just like that, the malware stopped spreading." It's still unclear why WannaCry included this kill switch. Some researchers think that it was because the authors had watched the progression of Conficker, which attracted undue attention. Others speculate this version of WannaCry accidentally escaped the network it was being tested on.
0: The WannaCry attacker used ransomware, did not think through the entire process. If he had, he would have registered the domain name. didn't register the domain name. So the domain name got re-registered by somebody and they redirected it, thus breaking the WannaCry. His payment process wasn't correctly set up, so people couldn't make payments to unencrypt their machines. So when the attacker, before they do the attack on a live organization, they do the attack in a siloed environment. So they run it over and over again against machines that they believe are similar to what they're going against. The victim posts, copies, and encrypts data. So after 2007, Conflicker, They started encrypting code out there. So when they send packets out of the network, they usually have them encrypted. So they're a lot more difficult to pick up. And it might upload the encrypted data to FTP. That's pretty common to be picked up. Most people look for that kind of stuff. So they've started using, like I said, DNS and other techniques to get the data out of the network. And then the attacker comes and gets it from the FTP server. Let's talk about malware and attacker tools before we get in. When the attackers attack, they have thought through the whole contingency. They've thought through the type of machines, the exploit they wanna do once they get on, what's the exploit gonna do? How's it gonna communicate and let them know successful? Just like you're building software. They were thinking about the whole process, the whole SDLC life cycle, software development life cycle. That's what this is they might want to go and reuse backdoor code. So they might go find backdoor droppers out there because they know that they'll work on that machine or droppers and downloaders. They might go get root kits for Windows machines. They might have to develop their own pivots. If they want to capture what's happening on the PC while they've got it infected or compromised, they might want to install keyloggers. And they have to also think, is the machine using software on there that would enable them to be detected like AMP or Immunet from Talos. That if somebody puts keylogger software on there it will notify them that there's keylog software on their machine. So these are things that they have to be careful about. They have to try to figure that stuff out before they attack. Now some attackers don't. They just put stuff together, like want to cry jamming out there and hope for the best. Some really sit there and think about it. And those are the ones that you have to be very concerned about. Polymorphic malware. This is malware that when it infects one machine, when it gets to another machine, it looks totally different. The hash, the SHA of the packet is different.
1: SHA, or SHA, that James just referred to stands for Secure Hashing Algorithm. Essentially, SHAs can help in revealing if an original message was transformed in any way. They're deterministic, which in computer science terms means that they're a system in which a given initial state or condition will always produce the same results. The way it works is that if even a single character of a message is changed, then it will generate a different hash as kind of an alert system. So it can be great in seeing if anything in the code was changed or manipulated.
0: Let's say that they exploited explorer.exe. I'm just giving an example. And you shod that output on one machine, and you went to the other machine that was infected, you shod the output, the two shots would not be the same. That means it changed when it got on the other machine. That's polymorphic. Some other common network attacks. Top network attacks. Let's look at what a sniffer attack is, and then we'll talk about some application attacks. McAfee had a report in 2016 of the top network attacks. The browser was 36% of the network attacks. Brute force was 20%. DOS denial of service was 17%, SSL 11 then you had some scans and DNS were at 3%. I think DNS attacks are going up today. So I'll make you bet that DNS attacks have increased. If people are running Windows DNS, seriously, you need to lock that down. Recommend bind nine code running on Linux would be a more secure version of DNS in your network infrastructure. And finally, the other. Other could be email campaigns, SQL injections, stuff like that. What is a sniffer attack? A sniffer attack is somebody that's been able to take a machine and turn the ethernet port into what's called promiscuous mode, and then install something like Wireshark in the machine and sniff the packets across the wire. They might be looking for HTTP traffic that has usernames and passwords in it. These are pretty easy to counteract in your network. If you're running a switch network, Users shouldn't be able to see, if they plug a sniffer into the network, all the traffic on the network because of the way the switch functions and how it controls the ARP cable. But if they poison the ARP cache, they could create an instance where you would get a lot more broadcast for communication and they could pick up things. But again, if your Layer 2 switching network is set up correctly to alert you, These type of events, ARP cache poisoning would be notified and would be captured. Application attacks, cross-scripting. This is when you go into a website and you install some scripting code inside the existing scripting code so that when the person goes to the URL, not only is it executing the code for that particular site, but also other scripting code that might be spawning off another page in the background that the user doesn't know about i give you an example. You should go take a look when you go to cnn.com or other big websites like that. How many other sessions are spawned off when you go to that site? One of my previous colleagues used to use this example of a Idaho-based real estate company had a website. They got their website cross-scripted. By the time they figured out that their website was redirecting people to a hack site, they had infected 50 or more clients that went to their website to look at houses, machines. And what it did was it redirected them in the background and then tested their browser for exploits and downloaded the exploits. Applications that have broken authentication or session management are very poor coding techniques. It's very important that companies use good coding techniques out there and validate their own internal application especially if they're hosted on the internet trojan horse okay so this is an example that just happened to me i was running my home pc and i noticed that adobe started running really slow and increasing in memory size and memory size and finally my inunet software kicked off which is kind of like amp and said adobe's been quarantined and i was like adobe and I went and looked at the adobe executable and shot it and of course somebody had taken the adobe executable which worked it launched adobe but it also had in it some other code so it must have been a trojan horse so somewhere somehow i either went to a site that replaced my adobe or i downloaded a pdf that did or I got a illegal version of Adobe on that machine. I don't know how that would have happened, but you never know. I didn't go back and do the forensics, but it happened to me. Then when I downloaded the current version of Adobe, my problem went away and the software didn't seem to complain about it. So it can happen. ActiveX. Microsoft ActiveX had holes in it. So did Java. It might be taking advantage of, you might not have the latest Java patches or ActiveX updates or your HTML code might be insufficient. So these are all different types of attacks that can be done against applications. Specifically, they try to do it against applications you host on the internet. So think about these applications you host, or if you're talking to another vendor. So maybe you have a partnership with another vendor, and maybe you have a VPN tunnel, and you think that these sites are secure, but you have to think about maybe that vendor that you're partnering with they've got hacked, so now that is a conduit into your network. Security is made up of layers. On average, most organizations have 40 or more different security vendors in there. But are the security vendor's solutions working together? Are they working in concert to provide you with the information that you need to know if you've been attacked or if you've been exposed? Sometimes the application may be telling you that there's something wrong with the application, but it might be more that the application's got a problem because somebody broke it while they're exploiting it. Look at open web application security products, the top 10 types of attacks out there.
1: OWASP, or the Open Web Application Security Project, is a nonprofit foundation that works to improve the security of software. According to their website, quote, through community-led open source software projects, hundreds of local chapters worldwide tens of thousands of members, and leading educational and training conferences, the OWASP Foundation is the source for developers and technologies to secure the web, end quote. This foundation regularly releases their OWASP Top 10 on their website, which is a list of security risks and attacks that you can consider as a standard awareness document for developers and web application security.
0: So A1, injection, broken authentication session management, cross-scripting, insecure direct object reference. So if you make a reference to a direct object, but the direct object is not code that's secure, that could be exploited. So they could figure out what that object you use, maybe in .NET, that you could exploit. Security misconfiguration. I see that all the time. Sensitive data exposure. We read about that all the time. That university, by accident, put all of its students' records on the Internet and exposed it. Those are things that you could see and could occur. Missing function and level access control. So you want to think of your application level access, you don't want to have just two tiers of control. You want to put in as many tiers as you can to make it harder for them to get across through. Cross-site request forgery, using known vulnerable components, and unvalidated redirects, each one of these your application developers need to know about. They need to understand how to prevent them. So not only you as a network administrator, or you as a SQL administrator, need to understand the security there, but the people that are putting the code on top of the SQL, or on top of the Windows, or on top of the network, need to be able to follow and understand these type of security control accesses. The more you prevent people from exploiting your code, Better off you are, even if somebody brings an attack into the network. So, here's an example of a buffer overflow attack. A buffer overflow attack is when I basically exploit the memory size uh, that is usually pooled given to a particular application or piece of code that's running. And I might expand it beyond or overwrite pieces of it. So, they basically zero out that memory space but leave it there for them to come use. Other injection attacks, you have blind SQL injection, blind XPath injection, format strings, where you send a bunch of code. I've seen people do this on URLs. They'll go to URLs and they'll add a bunch of characters to the end of the URL to see if it causes the server on the other end to crash, or they'll put invalid characters in there, hoping that the machine crashes. LDAP, this is a directory access, a lightweight directory access protocol. They might try to exploit LDAP's communication in responding to a user or an account lookup by injecting in bogus accounts to see if it accepts it. OS commanding, they might send OS commands into an application to see if the application passes it on to the kernel. So to close out, I'm going to talk about an example of an attack that was customized for a particular organization. This will give you an example of how far people will go to think through their attack and how long it can take them to find that attack on the network. On average, I think it's over three months for most companies to find the attack that's occurred in their network. So four South Korean targets were isolated off as being ones that were considered to be hostile to the country in the north. So these four South Korean organizations, Hyundai Merchant Marine being one of them, had a phishing attack done against them. The phishing attack was done through email spam. So first one, the technique was a utilized spam. All they needed was one person to click on it. Well, before they even started the spam campaign, they did a lot of research to determine what kind of machines were running on the network. They determined who worked for who. So they found out an example that Mary worked for the boss, Frank. So they sent Mary emails that looked like they came from Frank that had links in them. They were very specific in how they crafted this phishing attack because they figured out through public records searches, all the people in the organization, they figured out the types of machines that they're running, the software that they were running on the machines, and then they crafted the attack against them. Once Mary clicked on the phishing attack, by the way, that's not a real name, in case you didn't know, they went in and they installed a Trojan dropper on the machine. Basically, this was a DLL code that once the machine rebooted or they needed access, the DLL loaded up in Windows 7. It allowed them to then install keystroke logger, a directory listing tool, a remote control and execution tool, and a remote access tool. Meanwhile, they also forced the machine to disable the firewall. So now a good attacker wouldn't have disabled the firewall, what would they have done? They would have gone into the configuration of the Windows firewall, and they would have punched a hole in it. Basically, leaving it enabled in the tray down in the right-hand corner of the screen, but there would have been a hole punched in that firewall allowing their activity to communicate. That was probably one of their first mistakes. The second thing that they did was after they got control of the machine, they pivoted sideways to see other machines they could exploit, but they also send command and control bot information out through a Bulgarian web free-based email server. Now, why did they use Bulgaria? Well, they used Bulgaria because they didn't want it to be common knowledge that the traffic was going back to North Korea. They wanted it to go to another site that probably Wouldn't be as noticeable. And then they did regular reporting. Every evening, the machine would take all the directories that day that were touched, all the keys that were logged, all the documents. They didn't use Word, they used that open free software that looks like Word. They would compress those files into a directory, encrypt it, and then they would attach it to an email and email it to themselves at the Bulgarian site. And they did this every evening. It took 30 days for somebody to find that this was occurring. And I believe that this was identified because somebody said they couldn't enable their firewall. Every time they enabled their firewall, it got disabled. And then they started watching the machine and that machine would send out these huge attachments every evening and they figured it out. And doing forensic afterwards, they figured out the whole scheme of how this occurred over time. They were in there for about 30 days before they started the email campaign. So they got in the network, solidified their status, and then basically waited for about 30 days before they started sending out the documents. And this type of attack, the Kaminsky attack, if you read about a lot of attacks, it's very similar. They just start changing little pieces of this up.
1: That's it for James Risler, but I'm sure he'll be on the show again very soon. To find more information on cybersecurity and specifically Cisco CyberOps certification training, please visit the Cisco Learning Network at www.ciscolearningnetwork.com. There, you can find training videos, study groups, and more information on how to get started in your cybersecurity career. And to hear more news and stories of others who have earned their Cisco certifications, please subscribe to the Cisco Learning Network podcast change your password. I mean, thanks for listening.